Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by my friend Mike Stevenson, Marketing Director of the ALS Association of, oh, I'm going to w- forget which of the states that you're covering, so I'll let you introduce yourself and sure. that part of the ALS Association, which region you're working with. Yeah, thanks very much uh, for having me, Steve. I'm excited to be joining you on the podcast. As you mentioned, I'm the Marketing Director of the ALS Association. We are the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapters, so a three-state chapter. There are 42 chapters of the ALS Association across the U.S. A number of them cover multiple states. Disease population for ALS, not terribly large, so it makes sense uh, that some of the chapters expand over multiple states. So I asked you to come in and chat with me a little bit about peer-supported fundraising, mm-hmm. peer-to-peer work, and how that's really changing the shape of what a lot of charities are doing. Mm-hmm. But before I ask you to get too much further into that, can you just um, tell people a little bit about the mission of the ALS Association and right. what you do? Yeah, we're really about, uh, first and foremost, doing everything we can to discover new treat- treatments and a cure for ALS uh, ALS is a disease that is uh, 100% fatal. It has a life expectancy of about two and a half to five years after diagnosis. And as it is a neurodegenerative disease, what it does is break down your body's ability to function and slowly robs you of all your muscular functions. So you'll lose the ability to speak, uh, to eat and swallow, to move your arms and legs, uh, and eventually to breathe. And that's how you lose your life to ALS. So first and foremost, we're doing everything we can on the research front to discover treatments for the disease because there really are no effective treatments for ALS at this point in time. And beyond that, for those living with the disease, which in our three states is about 550 to 600 people, providing them with a suite of services they need, mobility equipment, support groups, communication and speech generating devices, really anything we can do to improve their lives and make living with this disease a little bit easier for them. An important mission, as many of the charities that we work with have, um, now the question becomes, how do we help pay for all of that stuff? Uh, So traditionally, you know, back 20th century kinds of thinking, there's always, well, we'll write a grant to Mm -hmm. somebody, um, Mm -hmm. which is lovely. But um, research shows that the Giving USA stats, uh, that the vast majority of money that goes into the charitable sector is coming from individuals, not from uh, foundations or corporations or even government sources. So Mm -hmm. knowing that that's true, a lot of charities have really struggled with how do we better get to the individual donor? Right. Um, And, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are probably familiar with the ice bucket challenge, but Mm -hmm. let's take it back a few years and talk about that moment in time because it really did shift a conversation for a lot of folks. Can you just describe um, what that was and how it impacted um, this peer-supported world that we're talking about? Yeah, so the ice bucket challenge, uh, a -a once-in-a-lifetime event and something that changed the face of the entire ALS community and the ALS association, but also, as you mentioned, really how organizations like ours think about that sort of fundraising. And what's interesting about the Ice Bucket Challenge, it happened in 2014. It was uh, started by a couple individuals, um, Pete Freides in Boston and Pat Quinn in New York. Uh, Both had been diagnosed with ALS at the time and were looking for a way to raise awareness and funding uh, for the cause and uh, the Ice Bucket Challenge was something that was begun by a, a professional golfer um, for, to raise money for cancer research. And it had, had limited success, hadn't really taken off. Um, and for Pat and Pete, both of whom had uh, large networks of friends and family, and Pete in particular, 
uh, had played college baseball, was a pretty successful athlete, had a number of uh, athletes uh, in the Boston area in his network. And after the two of them decided to adopt the Ice Bucket Challenge and um, take it on, they started posting on social media and a number of those athletes and minor celebrity connections of Pete's started doing the challenge. And from there, it took off like wildfire. You started having other celebrities, uh, other athletes, uh, and then pretty soon, you know, mega stars of the world taking the challenge. And that's what drew so much attention. Well, let's back up for a minute for those that maybe didn't participate in, in the social media world at that point sure. a few years ago. And just um, remember that the, the challenge is to give money to support ALS research and, and um, those support options you talk about. Or mm-hmm. get a bucket of ice water <laughs> right. dumped on your head. Right now, most people that did the challenge, of course, did both of those things. Yes, um, but it was really interesting to challenge somebody to either make a, a contribution or um, you know record themselves getting dunked. But what I don't think I had seen happen before in quite the same way that this particular challenge took off, as you mentioned, with all these mega celebrities mm-hmm. doing it, was they specifically challenged other people next. That's right. Uh, I was challenged to do this, and here's my response. I both wrote a check and got a bun- bunch of ice water dumped in my head. Right. Or um, my, my favorite response was actually from uh, Sir Patrick Stewart, who um, famously the check. Uh, sat down, wrote a, wrote a check in front of a camera, um, took some ice out of an ice bucket and put it into a nice civilized glass and had a drink and yeah. said, you know, this is the challenge. It's not everybody who chooses to get ice right. water in their head. But however they responded, the next thing was to name somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where this peer-supported piece really right. took off in a very different way. Instead of ALS Association going to existing donors and saying, would you please give from this fun thing mm-hmm. um, that raises awareness and raises some money, and that's great. Um, but the the virality of that idea of you name uh, a few more people to do yeah, that, but those people. folks are going to then name more people and will name more people and... Um, that part of it, I don't know, had been done in that way, in that successful right. uh, nature before the Ice Bucket Challenge. No, absolutely not. And as you mentioned, uh, having folks take the challenge and then name three of their friends or three of their family members, or in some cases, people they didn't know, elected officials or celebrities that they were a fan of or athletes that they knew about or just people in their community, challenging them to do it and then having those folks see that uh, happen in social media, particularly on Facebook. Facebook is where this really took off. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing that and then respond to that and, and be encouraged to take the challenge themselves, it grew so quickly. Uh, no one at the ALS Association was prepared for this. Uh, I think there are still some folks out there that think the National ALS Association dreamt this up in a marketing room somewhere. Folks like me came right. up with this idea to raise funds. It didn't happen that way. It was very organic. And the peer-to-peer nature is what caused it to really explode uh, in the period between the summer of 2014 and the spring of 2015. Uh, it raised $220 million worldwide. And 115 of that went to the ALS Association. $90 million of that has already been poured into research. So, of course, you're talking about life-changing money, uh, disease-changing money. And the equally important thing for the ALS Association, from our perspective, was the amount of awareness it raised. Right. Prior to this, um, there's a portion of the population that have heard of ALS, have heard of Lou Gehrig's disease, the other common name for it. And maybe they knew it was a neurodegenerative disease or that it was fatal, but they didn't really know how it worked or who was impacted or how you develop the disease. After the Ice Bucket Challenge, so many more people were aware 
not only of what ALS was, but how it impacted families in our communities. Huge, huge uh, awareness boon for the ALS Association and the ALS community in addition to the funds raised. So the math behind that is one of the things that is so important about looking at peer-supported campaigns is, you know, you reach a small corpus of people to begin with, fans that you do have, people that already know about the impact. In your case, as you're talking about these two folks that really tried to adapt this model, um, folks that had been diagnosed, is that mm-hmm. right? Both yes, of them? both living with ALS, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, they understood about the disease. Now they wanted to do something to um, help other people understand, but also to raise some resources to deal yes. with it. So when th- that core group of people starts out with just three and three and three and three, um, you do wish that you could point back to the marketing genius right. in Washington who goes, oh, of course they did the exponential math and figured out that this is the way to reach you know right. millions of people. Um, but I, I think that before that particular um, piece of tapping people's creativity themselves came in because mm-hmm. it became not just will you do the challenge, but how do you record right. yourself doing the challenge? Right. You know, Can you share something about you and where you are and your climate and your... I, as I recall, I think the, the then mayor of Minneapolis like went into a lake. He did. Um, because uh, she, right? It wasn't a mayor. Oh, yeah, just, it wasn't right. Uh, um, yes, right. right. I think it was Ryback, but it was now. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, it's the city of lakes here. So to go into an icy lake yeah. uh, was very much a, uh, a customized kind of response to the challenge thing. And I think that that is... One of the the strengths of peer supported fundraising that doesn't happen particular or hadn't happened as well in charities before mm-hmm. of saying we need to trust the people that believe in the message that we're talking about to use their networks and their creativity to spark interest in our mission. Yeah, we cannot give them the one solid template that says this is the only way to do this, and if you follow steps one through nine, and then you report back. But rather, um, this thing is designed for you to express um, anything that you want to express. You know, it can be very personal. Um, mm-hmm. It can be uh, um, very fun, and mm-hmm. it, and those. It doesn't matter if the disease is particularly very serious. The, getting people to learn more about it could be a fun thing. So yeah. people took it as a fun thing. Yeah, I think that's where the the game really changed yes. for um, so many people to become involved is because that personalization piece happened. That's absolutely the right word. Um, so as as you looked at this thing spiraling and growing at these exponential levels, mm-hmm. um, how how does the association respond to? I, I don't remember the exact figure, but your your annual individual donor contribution. What tripled, quadrupled? I mean, it was some very, very large exponential number. More than quadrupled. Um, And each chapter was able to benefit in different ways and use those funds um, for different things. So our chapter was able to eliminate the waiting list that we had that had been in place for decades uh, for durable medical equipment, which is a huge thing as families living with ALS. Uh, can't afford to wait for a new piece of equipment that Mm -hmm. they need to help them live their lives. So being able to eliminate those waiting lists was tremendous for us. Other chapters uh, did other things. And of course, a lot of that money is going into research. You mentioned personalization and creativity, and we heard that a lot, how excited folks were to be able to put their personal spin on this and their personal touch on this. Even folks living with ALS that were, of course, encouraged to see the challenge happening and uh, a lot of them overwhelmed really by the amount of support they felt from their networks folks willing to take the challenge and willing to donate but they would reach out and say we're looking for a really um, interesting and fun way to do this do you have an idea of how we can get a, a larger group together or maybe access to a specific piece of equipment that we can use and 
You mentioned some of the zany videos. I mean, folks with access to construction equipment using front loaders full of water and, <laughs> you know, bucket brigades of hundreds of people going down a line and dunking each other in water. Really fun and interesting to see. And it played into the personal nature of social media in general. Yeah. Like people love expressing themselves on social. And Facebook at the time was still a place where people were very... Uh, much expressing themselves and who they are and, and developing an identity in social media and using those pieces to do something charitable and also fun. A lot of number of people enjoyed taking mm -hmm. the challenge was very um, appealing to that audience. So the the victim of your own success problem now kind of right. comes up. So I, I, um, I think that there's a lot more to talk about in terms of just where peer-supported fundraising has been going in the years since. But I, before we just jump into you know what things look like 2018, um, I, I think that the, the challenge of how do you suddenly deal with a much, much larger budget mm -hmm. in a responsible way that, that the, the donors feel like it's engaged and meaningful. Right. Uh, certainly before all this happened, there was kind of the um, post-hurricane response problems with the American Red Cross getting large numbers of donations and then people feeling like later, well, wait a minute, I gave for this cause and you're using it for something else. And yes. So when you're hugely successful um, and have more resources coming in than you had anticipated, um, you've done a really great job just right here kind of explaining to me things I didn't remember mm. about how the money got used. How do you get back to those peers and say, because of your creativity and your strength, um, we've done these things, but we also want to kind of acknowledge that that is not a sustainable model for next right. year and the year after. So we have right. to understand how we use this one-time infusion to do things. So you, you talked a little bit about um, things like durable medical equipment mm -hmm. that you could catch up on, mm -hmm. but how do you communicate back to people that participate in the challenge? Like this is what you made possible, yes. but don't expect that next year. <laughs> right. No, that's a, that's a very, very good point because you see this happen and you, you know that it's going to have a tremendous impact for the ALS community. And you hope that uh, you're going to bear some pretty incredible results coming out of that. And that folks living with the disease will have uh, more hope than they did before. And first and foremost, thanking is key. You, yeah. you really need to thank these donors, many of them first-time donors, many of them folks who had never been engaged with the association before and, as I mentioned, didn't necessarily know what ALS was. Uh, you need to reach out to them and thank them and let them know that what they're doing is a good thing. From there, uh, it's as much communication as they will tolerate, really, uh, about how you're spending that money and how you're responsibly utilizing those funds. For ALS, a disease where research had been underfunded for a number of decades, uh, I mentioned a smaller disease population. So right. if you look at other neuroscope diseases, a disease like Alzheimer's uh, is a very well-known uh, disease and, and Alzheimer's type dementia. There's about 6 million Americans living with Alzheimer's. It's a very high number. And if you scale back to ALS, at any given time, there's around 20,000 Americans living with ALS. And that number... Uh, remains fairly static because uh, every essentially every time someone is diagnosed with ALS, another person loses their life to ALS. So mm -hmm. 20,000 is about where that number hovers at any given time. And research had been so underfunded for so long that it was about catching up in that arena. So I said $115 million came to the ALS Association. Again, a tremendous amount of money. We had to look at where are the immediate areas of research that we need to invest in where can we uh, have the most impact in the short term? 
And then how do we allocate these funds out over a number of years to ensure that we're not essentially blowing it all uh, in, in one go? So our team of uh, scientists and researchers at the ALS Association developed a very thorough and intensive plan uh, to say, here are our milestone-based research markers. Here are the things that we're going to put in place to ensure that research is being done responsibly and effectively over the next decade plus um, and have secured that money and set it aside to make sure that research happens. And we've already seen a lot of those results, uh, the genetic component of ALS. Uh, lots of strides have been made. We've discovered more than six new genes since the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Uh, four new treatments are in the pipeline at a time when there hadn't been any new treatments introduced in over 30 years. Wow. We just had a uh, treatment introduced last summer. It's called Radicava. And so explaining those sort of results and communicating regularly about those results to the donors becomes critical because like you said, the first thing folks want to know after they've done this very generous thing and given back is how is my money being spent? Where is it going? So you have to uh, explain to them uh, in a way that assures them you're being responsible with it. So once they've heard that message and they're following, though, I, I think that there's a couple of different audiences. One is the donors, but um, another is going to be um, the the community that's been impacted going, God, that was great. I need you to catch lightning in a bottle next year, too. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to set up a budget for you to create right. you know, a brand new viral thing right. that will be completely different from this one, but somehow have the same impact. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some pressure back to say, how do we take advantage of those same things that we learned from in the mm -hmm. Ice Bucket Challenge mm -hmm. to continue to reach new audiences. Um, so I don't know if there's a, a, a quick way to talk about, I mean, first of all, is there some pressure to sort of force some kind of virality, right. which you can't force, but right. I think people would like to be able to do. Yeah. And if not, how do you talk about getting into that um, peer-supported world where that personalization and stuff happens without needing to necessarily be at this crazy exponential scale. Yeah, and that's a that's a very good question. And we we heard everything that you were describing, so uh, particularly from folks living with ALS that said, great, we've got this money, what are we going to do with it, and how are we going to do this again? Because we know that it takes roughly $2 billion to develop a single drug treatment for a disease like ALS. So we know that we need more, even though $150 million is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Lightning in the bottle is the right way to describe it. And we knew right away we weren't going to be able to turn around the following year and say, everybody do the Ice Bucket Challenge again, and it's going to go great, and we're going to raise a ton of money. Folks were interested in still taking the challenge, and it turns out that Every August around that time when the original Ice Bucket Challenge started, folks do take the Ice Bucket Challenge and ask their friends to, to get involved and treat me in the same way. It's certainly not taking off nearly in the way it, it has, but sure. it, it's still something that people do and enjoy. But we thought it was more appropriate to um, come up with a more broader awareness campaign for ALS. It's called uh, Every Drop Adds Up. And what it does is it looks back at the community and says, you all were so wonderful in what you did with the Ice Bucket Challenge, and we really enjoyed seeing your creativity and the things that you came up with and ways to take the challenge. What other ideas do you have, uh, interests do you have, that could potentially raise awareness or funding for ALS? And the response to that has been tremendous. We have folks that uh, do bake sales, car washes, barbecues, uh, baseball tournaments, um, beanbag tournaments, mm -hmm. really whatever is in their wheelhouse, they have taken that initial model and said, I have access to a particularly um, 
excited group of friends or network on social media, my Facebook friends, my Instagram followers, whatever it may be, I'm going to engage them with something that I'm interested in and I, I think they may be interested in. We're going to do this other activity that's not necessarily pouring water on our heads, but it can raise awareness and can raise dollars. And every August, people have been doing that. So you mentioned a couple of specific things that are a little bit more um, event-based, which is sort of where most of us had the first exposure to sure. um, peer-supported fundraising is um, the whole sponsor me on the 5K, I'm, yeah. I'm doing the, the fun run, whatever. Um, and, and that type of fundraising has been around for a very long time and, and has, is well-tested. But things like that that require a lot of infrastructure to pull off have their own challenges as opposed to something that can be self-replicating without any further investment from right. the charity right. uh, so um, the, and which is why I really wanted to talk to you in, in particular about this topic because I think we need to disaggregate peer supported fundraising from event based yes. peer supported fundraising because yes. there's good reasons to do the event based fundraisers the um, the, the, the fun run, the, the community walk, the whatever thing it might be, yeah. um, gets people physically together and build some community. And that's great, but it's, it is a, a substantially more resource intensive thing for the charity mm -hmm. to do. And I think mm -hmm. that's important to put on the table that yes, it's peer supported, but I also think that it limits the creativity of the peer audience if their role is it's this day, this time you we're doing this there. event, you have to do that thing. You can communicate about why you're doing the thing any way you want to communicate that and share that message, but it does harness the creativity down to a, a funnel uh, of a sort. So as you think about that um, audience communication piece of some people choose to do the car wash thing, mm -hmm. which is great, um, and some people choose a bake sale because it's their fun <laughs> thing. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. Um, but um, thinking about how we build more peer um, creativity around how they can not only raise some dollars, because it seems to me that some of those things focus a little bit more on the raising money, yeah. but also connect more people into the network of what ALS is trying to do, which right. is the real lightning in the bottle thing about what the Ice Bucket Challenge did, is you, when those people became donors, you got names and addresses and probably email to talk to them. And that is a huge benefit. Yeah, that's gold. So how do we think about, um, as you're moving forward, that particular piece of what we're looking for here is not just some additional money, which is always needed mm -hmm. and welcome, mm -hmm. but more relationships about the work that you're doing and how to talk to people about that? Yeah, great question. And in my world, in, in marketing and raising awareness, it really becomes about storytelling. And for folks that are uninitiated and, and have never met someone living with ALS or have a limited experience with the disease introducing them uh, to what it's like to live with ALS, uh, introducing them to someone who is experiencing the challenging of the disease, uh, it's, it's important because you very quickly see how difficult it is and you can empathize with what someone's going through uh, in facing these challenges. Mm -hmm. And so telling stories of the ALS community are critically important and social media is a great way to do that. But where that ties back to the peer-to-peer -peer fundraising and awareness raising and the Ice Bucket Challenge is... One of the biggest lessons that came out of the Ice Bucket Challenge was the influence that a single person can have. So yeah. say you took the challenge and you challenged three of your friends, uh, and of course they challenged three of their friends, but 4,000 people ended up watching the video that you did because you did it in a really creative and fun way, and it became popular, and, and in your region that many people saw the video, and you felt great about that, and it made you realize that 
you can have a pretty large impact with it by doing a very small thing. And it emboldened a number of folks on Facebook to one, learn more about the disease, seek out others in the community that are impacted by the disease, and also share their own stories. And I'm not necessarily talking about stories of living with ALS or knowing someone living with ALS, but opening up about challenges they face in their life Mm -hmm. or things that they experience uh, that are real and important to them and using a medium like social media and Facebook to uh, share that story and influence others and raise awareness about any number of causes. I think what the Ice Bucket Challenge did was open up uh, all kinds of avenues for folks to tell their own story and also feel confident enough to continue down the path of raising awareness for ALS or whatever it is they're passionate about. I want to get back to Facebook in a minute, but I want to follow up on the idea of um, how you support that individual in in reaching networks. So Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's been happening, I think, that is a little bit more broad in in the nonprofit community around peer-supported fundraising is giving people the opportunity to sort of create their own story on a page that is sponsored or lives with the organization they're doing rather than... Um, asking them to create it or not having the ability to share that in that way. Um, Is that infrastructure that ALS is looking at right now or you already have it or how does that work? Yeah, so for a number of our pieces, whether they're research-related, event fundraising-related, or service-related, we have uh, web portals and websites tied back to our main website, ALSMN.org, where folks can go and create their own page to share their story. Mm-hmm. And whether it's they're living with ALS or a member of their family is, or they're just trying to make a difference for the cause, they can open up about why it's important to them and encourage others to get involved. And then that has ties back to essentially whatever channel they want to either raise awareness or ask folks to give in. So you can connect it to your Facebook or your Twitter feed or just put a donate button on there and have folks give directly to the association That was something that folks asked for because while they were comfortable taking the challenge on Facebook immediately and and, and posting their video or whatever it was they did, when they wanted to go a step further, they didn't necessarily know that their own personal page was the place to do that. So having a spot with the association to say, I can create a profile, share my story here, and then link it to whatever else I want to was something that they asked for. I, I asked that infrastructure type of question because, um, you know, Facebook, of course, has taken great note of the success of these sorts of things and has now introduced this donate your birthday kind of uh, mm-hmm. tool. Um, and I, I I personally am quite concerned about that for the nonprofit community and want to talk a little bit about what that means, because I think that they're trying to um, recognize the importance of the relationships that they're talking about here and sort of cut the charity out of the picture. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we've got these individuals that have great stories to share. We want them to share them on Facebook, but we don't want them to leave Facebook to make a contribution. So we're going to make it really easy for them to just give through Facebook, cut the charity out of the communication completely and just have this whole thing happen here. And um, while that seems like a a very nice thing for a lot of people that are having a birthday to do, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I could just give my birthday to ALS. That's great. I'll set it up. Um, By removing the the charity from the communication with the donor, you end up getting some kind of check from Network for Good eventually. And um, 
And it's better to get some money than to not get some money. That's lovely. Right. right. But better still than just getting some money from a, a faceless uh, a bank account that, that was run through Facebook yeah. is the ability to actually talk to the folks that are making the donations. Yeah. And I think there's where we've now seen a different thing pop up in peer-supported fundraising when institutions like Facebook try to um, intermediate themselves in that relationship. And I don't think that... Um, the, the 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 volunteer fundraisers out there are thinking there's anything at all wrong with right. this. This is, seems like just such an easy thing to do. Right. But now we have to, I think, do some more education around that community. Education is exactly correct. And, and what you're describing is happening right now. Folks are using Facebook in particular uh, to donate to causes that they're passionate about. And just in the last six months, Facebook has uh, really taken steps to make it easier for charitable organizations like the ALS Association to connect with those individuals. And they're essentially uh, setting up portals to give directly to a specific chapter of the ALS Association or a specific chapter of whatever organization you're supporting. Uh, But what happens more often than not is someone will say, I have my birthday coming up or an event coming up that I want to fundraise for. And I'm I'm just going to, not blindly, but, but take the least the path of least resistance and set up a donate for Mm -hmm. this cause uh, on my page, not going through those channels that I just described. They're going to raise four or $500, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. And then just exactly as you said, network for good, we'll cut a check to that organization. There will be no, I will have zero information about how many donors there were and the level of contributions they made, whether or not they want to hear from the organization again. And, and that's, valuable information to have because obviously you want to have that connection with the donors and you also want to properly thank them and make sure that they know that you appreciate what they've done and explain to them the difference that they're making. So it's a really delicate balance right now and receiving those funds in a new way is great. Again, having that money is better than not having, having it, but more importantly, we want to ensure that we're connecting with those donors uh, and, and thanking them and keeping them in our stable down the road. So it's about educating them of the new ways to give that you can give directly to an organization through Facebook. You don't have to raise that money outside of the organization. And as you said, cut out the charity. So uh, there may be something that I've missed here. So let me kind of dig at that a little bit. There is a possibility to um, set up a a peer supported fundraising campaign on Facebook that gives the information or gives the somehow processes the payment directly to the charity. You do then get some contact information for the people to thank them. We do. Oh, so how does, how does one do that? Cause it looks to me like everything is set up for search for your charity. We have them listed. They're in network for good cause they're in the IRS database Mm -hmm. and we've got them. We've handled it for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're not careful, cause this is the only way I've seen it so far, um, then you, you get this sort of faceless check from uh, Network for Good, which at the moment is fee free. Yes, um, but I don't May expect not always be that way. I don't expect that will stay that way as they learn more about how that goes. This could actually become part of a business model for Facebook, but yeah. but that's a, a future thing. But right now, today, people can choose to set this up differently. So, how, what does that look like? Can you describe it briefly? Yeah, it's sort of what you're saying. So you, you decide that you're going to set up. Um, the fundraiser, and then you're selecting a specific organization and you search and it does it geographically. So if you're doing it on your phone and you're in the Twin Cities area, it's going to pull up whatever charity you're searching for related to that cause and you can directly select them. It's separate from what happens for Network for Good. Mm -hmm. So uh, Facebook reached out to 
charitable organizations across the United States initially and said, we're going to set this up through network for good. Here's how it works. We're going to do a pilot program uh, in these this many states with this many organizations, and we'll see how it goes and go from there. More often than not, as I described, people were not really picking up on that and, and giving in other ways, and it, it wasn't working as fluidly as they'd hoped. So they've developed a more direct model, and this just happened in the last 90 days. Okay. They've started implementing this and giving folks the opportunity to give directly and, and informing them and saying, this money is, is not going to go through an intermediary. It's going to go directly to who it is you intend to give. And they're collecting information. The issue has been, at least on our side, uh, the information has been fairly consistent, inconsistent, excuse me. And we're getting an occasional email address, a first and last name. Um, once in a while, folks will fill out more information than that on how they want to designate their gift or why they're getting involved. It's pretty rare. So okay. we're, we're getting small snippets of information uh, instead of this whole kind of data set that we'd like to have about these donors and, and who's giving. So it's uh, there are growing pains, but yeah. we're encouraged by the fact that this is happening because we think in the next six months to a year, we'll start to get better reporting, more information. Because a number of organizations like ours are having these same concerns and are excited about it, but want to make sure it happens in the right way. So if um, a charity is interested in becoming um, uh, more engaged in doing some Facebook-type fundraising, can yep. they go in somehow as an institution and say, I need to be able to flag myself this way? How do I register? Or Absolutely, whatever? yeah. You essentially go in through the admin side of, of Facebook oh, okay. and say, uh, we're a charitable organization. Here's our 501c3 information or whatever it may be to prove that we're a charitable organization. It's it's quite an intensive application process, actually, oh, okay. uh, that you go through and, and give them a lot of information. And if you want to do direct fundraising, you have to give them banking information as well. So okay. it ties directly into your bank accounts at the organization. Once you do all that, uh, it's fairly seamless from there. Okay. And uh, so we went through that a couple months ago and are just kind of starting to see some of those dollars come in and the reports come in. And again, we're, we're encouraged, but we'd still like some improvements on the reporting side. And Facebook has acknowledged that. They've said, we're just figuring this out as well. Yeah. Uh, give us some time. So we're working with them on that. So Facebook is a channel, but um, you know, Twitter, others, I imagine, we're, as you say, growing. So there's lots of others that will want to be able to use that peer-supported, what's your network of choice to talk to? Because I um, I'm, I do a lot of work on Facebook for clients, but I personally don't participate in the network anymore. So, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody like me wants to do it, I'm a heavy Twitter user. Maybe yeah. there's a way that I can be making it easier for people to donate through links through that network, you know, all of that. So I, I want to just back up a second saying how we started this conversation about, wow, the power of virality and all the rest of it. This is fantastic. But to throw that caution in um, of, wow, when you give up control of message, you sometimes give up control of platform. You give up control of how do we then acknowledge a donor? Right. And um, I, I can only imagine there's a couple of folks that maybe gave through a, uh, a Facebook-type fundraiser uh, to a charity that never got a thank you note from the charity yep. and think to themselves, well, geez, you know, um, I, I made a donation and I never got any kind of acknowledgement from them. I, I yep. don't feel like that was great and a, not a good experience. And then if they do hear from you in the future, they may be less excited about participating. That's true. So we've got to be um, acknowledging the power of asking individuals to step in on our behalf and, and bring those messages out, but also the challenges of if we 
you don't control that experience from beginning to end, you know, there's some rough edges in this new world. There really are. And, and you said it before, and I'll say it again, education is so important. Yeah. And Facebook is very quick to say, well, we do the tax receding and we thank the donors immediately. But that's a message that's obviously and clearly coming from Facebook. Right. It's not the same as hearing from the ALS Association or the organization of your choice. That's not personal to you and, and you don't necessarily feel like you're being recognized by that organization. In our mind, that's a problem. We want to be able to thank those people properly and, and let them know what they're doing is, is a good thing. So what we're doing is, is being as proactive as we can be without uh, pestering folks. If we notice that a donor we're connected to is starting a fundraiser on Facebook or the social media, we'll reach out and say, do you have any questions uh, about this process? Are you feeling good about where it's going? Is there any more information we can provide you? How much would you like to hear from us on this front? Those sort of questions yeah. to feel them out and, and make sure they're comfortable raising money this way and that it's an experience that uh, is positive for them so that, as you said, when it wraps up, they feel like they're properly thanked and recognized. They, they got what they wanted out of it. And we have uh, hopefully a donor that's going to contribute in the future. So towards that end, I want to, and we're starting to run a little low on sure. time, but I want to ask about the idea of transitioning a, a relationship from that peer to the cause. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something that I think we have to be very careful about too in this newer world of um, getting back to people in that thank you, but acknowledging how the relationship started. Mm -hmm. That, you know, um, you know, thank you for contributing to ALS um, because your friend such and such introduced you to the cause. And we're really grateful to that person for for right. making the introduction. Now, we'd love to stay in touch with you. We'd like to show you this information. You know, how would you like to be engaged? And all those things that we need to do. But by first acknowledging, they didn't just seek you out because they were concerned about ALS. Right. They came in because somebody that they care about um, brought them to the table. Some of those folks may at that point just opt out of the whole thing going, I don't actually have a real commitment to this particular cause. I have a commitment to my friend. Yep. So I made a, a donation because of that, and I don't want to receive lots of other information and all the rest. So how do you um, help gauge the level of potential interest that some folks may become and bloom into real committed volunteers, donors, whatever? Others may choose not to. How do you help them gate? It's a delicate relationship. It is, and that's a challenge for all nonprofits. Yeah. And opting in is the key, of course. You want that opt-in. You want folks to say, uh, I've had this initial engagement with the organization. I decided that I do want to learn more and I do want to give more in the future or raise awareness. That uh, is, that's your avenue to, to be in contact with them uh, down the road. But for folks who are just doing it because they're supporting a friend or this one-off thing for them, where do you reach them? And amplifying our messages on Facebook in particular have been important to us. We're doing a lot of boosting in geographical posts and, and trying to reach folks in pockets where we know there's been a lot of engagement activity. But more importantly, we're developing and fostering brand ambassadors. So you have folks in your Facebook community and in your social media community that you know are going to be active with the organization that have been probably for a number of years, have given multiple times, have made a number of efforts to raise awareness online and in social media for your cause. You do have that relationship with them. They're the ones with the connection to their friends and networks. And you go to them and say, uh, what would you like to see more of from us? How can we help you reach your audience? Because we know that you have that personal and private relationship with them. We don't want to spam them. We don't want to make them feel uncomfortable about anything. What would you recommend we do to reach this audience? And, and what do you think would be most effective in your network? And the response has been positive. Folks have said, 
if you can provide me with these awareness raising tools or ideas to raise more funds, I will implement them in my circles and go about that this way. And then we've seen more organic growth from that. They'll go implement those things and then we'll have more Facebook followers, we'll have more engagement and ideally more dollars down the road. Well, I really love that idea about this brand ambassador question from some of those folks as a next step up, um, in part because uh, one of the challenges about using Facebook is uh, trying to communicate as an institutional page. You're deprecated. Mm-hmm. They, they bury you as, as much as they can right. intentionally bury the message of a charity um, or other businesses. I mean, just organizations are currently, and who knows how that algorithm would change in the future, but are currently kind of uh, at the bottom of the list of things that get shown to people. Yep. But if that brand ambassador is talking to their friends and their network, they have a very different approach. Have you started exploring the idea of uh, Facebook groups that are led more by those people as opposed to institutional leading of those conversations? Yeah, that's somewhere we're just starting to go. And we've yeah. done that more on the service side with support oh, groups yeah. and, and online uh, places and forums for folks to reach out and connect and share their experience about either living with ALS or having lost a loved one to ALS. So that's been more on the service side so far, but we are looking at uh, ways to do that in peer-to-peer fundraising and, and utilizing those ambassadors in a way uh, that feels organic and safe and, and doesn't feel like we're trying to exploit their audiences. That's the challenge. You don't want to feel like you're ever exploiting someone's social network. And now more than ever with uh, some of the news that's been out there about Facebook and the, the right. data leaks and, and how your privacy and that information is shared, there's some uh, hesitance and, and fear amongst folks about maybe what's floating around about them out there and how they've set their privacy settings on Facebook. So you need to be cognizant of that and you need to be careful about that. But the more you can encourage your brand ambassadors to share your message and use their own voice on your behalf, the easier it is to, to up your engagement. Right. And to use their voice in whatever channels are the right way to do it. Certainly right. email, of course, is still a thing. Yes, you know, yes, absolutely. Um, um, you know, we used to think that MySpace could never fail. So, um, <laughs> you know, Facebook is is the dominant social channel right now. It is. Um, but to be able to have that relationship with those brand people that if the, that ever changes in the future, you know, you've, you've got the ability to still be in touch with them and you've not sunk all your eggs into that particular basket. Yeah. So um, we have just a couple of minutes. I want to uh, give you an opportunity. Is there anything about that um, peer work and individual donation stuff that I haven't asked you about yet that you think is kind of important or interesting? No, very, very thorough, Steve. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. I, I knew you would uh, come with some great questions, and you did. We covered a lot of ground. No, I, I'm fascinated by this idea of um, how we have to balance that idea of, um, yes, we at full-time staff and nonprofits and whatnot um, know some things that we think are really important important to communicate, but we just have to build some trust with our audiences that Mm -hmm. if we give them those tools, um, they will help us, but they've got to be able to do it in their own way. And I think that's the the piece of what peer-supported fundraising to me, and again, different from that event fundraising piece, um, where more charities should be not trying to think, I will just come up with the next ice bucket challenge. That probably isn't going to happen sure. on a planned thing. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if we had another right. amazing giving um, opportunity like that that comes out of some other thing. Yeah. But um, we aren't going to just force that. So recognizing that we can create opportunities for people to think about things like birthday fundraisers or if they are, you know, um, you know, they love to bake and do a bake sale. Sure. That's a totally great way. But when you do the bake sale, rather than just collecting the money, if you could also collect an email address and ask people, would you be willing to hear from ALS about what's going on? Right. Those sorts of tools and tips that really help build the the mission work in addition to raising some money, 
those are great things. Yeah, and you alluded to earlier, folks, after the Ice Bucket Challenge happened, other charitable organizations saying, how do we do this? Yeah. How can we replicate this? And the association got flooded with requests from other nonprofits saying, can you come talk to us about how you did the Ice Bucket Challenge and why it was so great? <laughs> and the message really became, you know, this happened organically. This was not our idea. Uh, there's no way to replicate this. And when, when you're saying... Uh, you have to be careful about how you reach those audiences and what you ask them to do. I always say, stop pushing and start equipping. You can't oh, yeah. force this to happen. You just have to equip your users and your brand ambassadors with the tools to do it on their own. They know their friends and family. They know their audience much better than you do. Give them the tools and allow them to develop it in a way that feels natural to them. Stop pushing, start equipping. That is a perfect way to end this conversation. So Mike Stevenson, Marketing Director at the ALS Association, Minnesota, North and South Dakota. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. <laughs>